Hi, this is Ellie Fishman, and welcome to our latest vodcast. And this one is going to be on pranking with liver disease. It'll be a couple part story. And again, I think one of the things I've noticed is that I give lots of talks on liver masses, which is a very popular subject. But we tend not to focus on parenchymal liver disease. And so I was asked to give this talk at a meeting recently, so I thought I would share it with the CTSS audience. So here we go. In terms of protocols, I mean, in many ways, the protocol, whether you're looking for inflammatory disease, infectious disease, uh, cirrhosis, or looking for a tumor, protocols tend to be the same. For oral contrast, we'll always use water as a neutral contrast agent. Uh, obviously, we use positive or neutral contrast agents in many of our applications, but for the liver, I'll always give water. Now, you may ask, why do you need to give any oral contrast at all? Well, we like to distend the stomach. It gets rid of pseudotumors. And in patients, for example, with cirrhosis, we can better define the varices. But I always like to eliminate the possibility of pseudotumors. And, and there's no downside, right? There's no artifact of water. There's no issues. There's no problem with patient cooperation. And then we use IV contrast. Depending on the patient's creatinine, for example, we'll either use omnipake or visipake in the 100 to 120 cc range, depending on the patient's size. So that's pretty simple. Now, in terms of protocols, again, if there was, uh, we talk about this with the kidney very commonly, if there was no issue with radiation dose, you might get four different phases from the non-contrast through arterial to venous to delayed phase imaging, but in an era where we're trying to maximize information but minimize dose, we need to be very selective. So we do not do four phases on patients. Uh, in most of our situations, we do not do non-contrast CTs. Uh, in tumors, there is this issue potentially about doing non-contrast CTs in cirrhotic patients. Perhaps you can help separate regenerating nodules, which are denser in hepatomas. But in parenchymal liver disease, it's typically not necessary. Now, I will make one caveat. If you want to look at fatty infiltration of the liver, and I'm going to speak about that a little bit later, the most accurate technique is a non-contrast scan. But in saying that, if you need to do a non-contrast scan, you might do one or two slices. You don't need to scan the entire liver. Arterial phase imaging is something we routinely do. We like arterial phase imaging, particularly, of course, in patients with parenchymal liver disease, hepatitis B, hepatitis C. You're worrying about hepatoma as one of the potential complications. And, of course, hepatomas, 30% or more, will only be seen with arterial phase imaging. And when we speak about arterial phase, we don't do the very early arterial phase that had been spoken about. Uh, we do the basically around 30 seconds. We find the art early arterial phase to be good for vessel mapping if that was your only thing, but it's just sometimes too early for tumors to be lighting up. So that's something that was spoken about a couple years ago, but people routinely do not do it. And then routinely, our second phase is the venous phase at about 60 to 70 seconds. Occasionally, just like with tumor imaging, we may get delayed phase imaging. Remember, we speak about with masses, sometimes you want to look for delayed phase uh, enhancement, like suspected cholangiocarcinomas, or perhaps you want to look at a lesion, does, does it fill in better, like a, a hemangioma, but routinely we do not do that. Our protocols, injection rates, we like to go at a four to five cc's a second. Typically, we try to do five, rarely less than four. Obviously, sometimes don't, patients don't have great IV access, so maybe you'll go at three, but uh, four to five is what you're aiming for. 
and we'll do thin sections so your scanning protocol will vary depending on your scanner but we use the smaller detectors and we typically go with 0.75 millimeter thick sections every 0.5 millimeters this gives us the capability to do isotropic resolution and isotropic data sets with multiplanar and 3d imaging as i'll show you now when we look at parenchymal liver disease there are a number of different topics and I'm going to cover most of these topics, starting with fatty infiltration of the liver and then going through some of the other topics that I have listed here. So fatty infiltration of the liver is a very common pathology. It's probably the most common pathology we'll see on CT. It's also known as hepatic steatosis. That seems like a more impressive uh, description. And it's typically a sequela of a range of insults to the liver, ranging from dietary to trauma to ischemia. Fatty infiltration of the liver may be diffuse or may be focal. And when it's focal, it can be problematic as it can simulate a hepatic tumor or other mass-like process. So it's indeed, it's a very important pathology. Patients with fatty infiltration of the liver, just some important facts. Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is 7 to 10% of patients undergoing liver biopsy. Obesity is the biggest risk factor, and so up to 30% of obese patients have non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, and it's now felt that within 20 years, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis will become the most common chronic liver disease. So it's very important. There are a number of articles written about this. This article by Lale talks about the inflammatory subtype of non-alcoholic liver disease, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, is becoming one of the most important causes of chronic liver disease. So all of us are going to see it in practice more commonly. The clinical presentation is variable from diabetes, which is associated with obesity, hyperlipidemia, severe hepatitis, parental hyperalimentation, malabsorption, corticosteroids, and trauma are some of the findings. Now, if I ask you, what is fatty infiltration of the liver on CT? What does it look like? Well, typically, we always like to say the liver attenuation is lower than the spleen or paraspinal muscles. Normally, the liver should be denser than the spleen, typically 7 to 10 Hounsfield units. And typically, one of the ways you distinguish between fatty infiltration, particularly when it's focal and a tumor, is that vessels are seen through the fatty infiltration zone without distortion or invasion. Now, Currently, what's our definition? Well, when I looked at the literature, there are actually many definitions. People speak about a liver attenuation, a non-contrast CT of under 40 Hounsfield units, the classic liver attenuation less than or equal to the spleen minus 10, liver attenuation equal to or less than the spleen, liver attenuation less than or equal to the spleen plus 5, or a liver to splenic attenuation ratio of 1.1. Well, those are all possibilities, and sometimes they seem to be getting complicated. Anything with a ratio, to me, becomes complicated. And so the most common definition that people are being used, non-contrast CT, under 40 Hounsfield units. So an absolute number. A couple articles in this regard. Measurement of attenuation of liver only on non-contrast CT is the best for predicting pathologic fat content. Article by Kadoma. Article by Boyce. Assessment of liver attenuation by non-contrast CT rep represents an objective and non-invasive means for detection of asymptomatic hepatosteatosis, whereas clinical risk factor assessment is unreliable. So again, non-contrast CT is the way to go. And Boise also says it does remain unproven whether this subset of individuals with moderate to severe fatty liver disease are truly at a greater risk to progression, to cirrhosis, 
and further evaluation and longitudinal follow-up is necessary. But nevertheless, we all recognize that it is an increased risk factor. So indeed, it's very important. ACID goes further talking, and this is something that's very important. Patients with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, even without metabolic syndrome, are at higher risk for atherosclerosis. Assessment of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, or NAFLD, may be helpful for cardiovascular risk stratification. So you can think about, think about that statement for a second. Just look at that statement again. That would mean, perhaps, if you see fatty infiltration of the liver, you should speak to people, speak to the patient, speak to the referring physician. Perhaps they need to evaluate the patient further. Maybe they need to do a coronary CTA or calcium scoring, perhaps. Presence of fatty liver is a strong predictor of subclinical coronary artery disease. So this indeed may be very, very important. Let's look at some examples. Very simple. Visually, you're going to call this fatty liver. There is prominent caudate lobe. But when you measure it, the liver is 18 and the spleen was 48 Hounsfield units. Very classic. Now, we also talk about problems sometimes in fatty liver. Um, here's just a good example of a patient with, I think, colon cancer, has fatty infiltration of the liver, probably due to chemotherapy and nutritional issues, and also has metastasis. So sometimes you can see both, and metastasis can actually stand out better in fatty liver. But again, nice example of diffuse fatty infiltration of the liver, and you can see here how much better the vessels stand out. One of the comments we make is with fatty infiltration, the vessels are well-defined, but... Um, they're not distorted, but in this case, you have metastatic disease that's present. Okay, so let's move along from there to cirrhosis. A cirrhosis of the liver, some facts. Chronic liver disease is characterized by fibrosis and necrosis of the liver parenchyma. In the U.S., alcohol abuse is the most common cause of cirrhosis of the liver, but is caused by a range of pathologies, and is the sixth leading cause of death in the U.S., and in fact, it's increasing in frequency. Etiology, alcohol abuse. One of the reasons it's increasing is hepatitis B and C. Biliary cirrhosis, primary sclerosis and cholangitis, and drugs are all causes of cirrhosis. Now, when you look at CT, we know there are numerous findings. Some of the things we look at, and again, it's a spectrum. Sometimes patients have cirrhosis biopsied, and the CT doesn't look all that bad, but that's fairly uncommon. Things we'll see. A nodule liver with increase in the size of the left lobe with decrease in size of the right lobe. Increased distance between the abdominal wall and liver surface. Nodularity of the liver with, will vary with nodules often seen in non-contrast CTs as high-density nodules. These are these regenerate nodules. And you may see even hypervascular nodules, but then you worry about hepatoma. Remember, hypervascular nodules can also be regenerate nodules. So there's a wide spectrum. Most common thing we see is something like this. The liver is nodular, there's increased distance to the abdominal wall, and when you start looking carefully, this is the arterial phase. Remember, arterial phase, you tend not to get good venous opacification. When you look at the GE junction here, looks like there's a mass, and you know that once you get delayed phase or venous phase imaging, this is going to light up as huge varices. But you see the big caudate lobe, you see the textural changes, you see the wide fissures, and you come back on venous phase and you see the huge varices. Very, very classic example of cirrhosis. You'll be looking, make sure there's no hepatoma, but very, very classic visualization. Here it is again, another set of axial images showing you those large varices. It would not be a great surprise if this patient presented with GI bleeding. No surprise at all. And here it is from a 3D perspective. You very nicely see on 3D often 
beyond the varices, you'll see splenal renal shunting. If the patient is actively bleeding, you'll see that very nicely. And the MIP imaging really gives you a, a very nice appearance of not only the large varices, but also the shunting of blood into the SMV and the classic appearance of portal hypertension. Now, I will say sometimes you do get infiltration of the liver in cirrhosis, and it's very hard to say there's no tumor present. Look at this case. Look at these multiple tiny vascular structures. Look at the texture of the liver. Now, uh, here it is again. Now, is this multifocal hepatoma? Is, are these multiple AV malformations? What exactly is going on here? You look at the arterial map a little bit further. The vessels are stretched, but they're not distorted. And then if you go to venous phase, you see huge varices at the G junction, and the liver now has this mottled appearance. It's irregular, and here it is again. Um, this was cirrhosis. This patient had a liver transplant. The patient developed liver failure, so his liver was sliced and diced, and there was no tumor present. And this is a very good example, I think, whether it's CT or MR. It can be extremely difficult to always exclude a hepatoma. The liver is so abnormal here. You don't see any one specific zone of concern. The entire liver is of concern. And maybe the patient had multifocal hepatoma, but this is a very nice example of showing you some of the issues involved. Now, another case, patient with cirrhosis, depending where they stand in the spectrum of disease, can develop ascites. The ascites can be very extensive, as in this case. But again, you see diffuse fatty infiltration of the liver. Again, you want to be careful in looking at fatty infiltration on arterial phase imaging. This is the arterial phase. Remember, on venous phase, um, the liver enhances a bit better. So you want to be very careful and not overcall things. If you only use the arterial phase and you look at density differences, the spleen typically enhances very briskly and you could overcall fatty infiltration. I show you this example to show you the wet bowel, hypoproteinemia, common in patients with liver disease, and then I show you the MIP imaging very nicely, showing you some of the varices, the patent portal vein, remember that can be occluded or partially occluded, the extensive varices, and the wet bowel pattern, and then here as well, nicely showing you the patent portal veins, SMV, splenic vein, and the collateral flow, and the extensive ascites. So just a very nice example. Wet bowel pattern relates to the patient's parenchymal liver disease and hypoproteinemia. It can be very impressive. Look at this case of wet bowel. We also talk about thickening of the right colon. In a cirrhotic patient, if the right colon is thickened, and only the right colon, I don't say Crohn's or ulcerative colitis or pseudomembranous colitis. I'll typically say the thickening of the bowel, which is consistent with the patient's parenchymal liver disease. And again, in this case, just look at the size of the vessels in the mesentery. That is what I call shunting of blood, portal hypertension. You get a lot of flow into mesentery. You can see why the patient's bowel is edematous in part. This is one of the reasons. But also you can see very, very nicely why this patient could have uh, GI bleeding. I mentioned the point about the colon, and here's a good article by Ormsby. Uh, our results suggest the CT findings of colonic wall thickening and end-stage liver disease should be considered benign, and that colonoscopy is unnecessary for the evaluation of malignancy or colitis unless it is clinically indicated. And the authors also say that the colonoscopy changes primarily range from mucosal edema to increased vascularity and telangiectasias, probably from hypoproteinemia or portal hypertension. So again, a very important thing to recognize is you're going to see these findings. You want to make certain that you don't overcall them. And that indeed becomes very important.
Now, one of the things we also see, I mentioned before, in patients with cirrhosis is varices. And again, early phase imaging, you tend to under estimate the extent of the varices, that is the varices are not opacified. But if you look at these arterial phase images, I think you recognize them. You can see those tubular structures. I guess theoretically you can confuse them with nodes, but you can see here very nicely the huge varices when you go to the uh, venous phase images, and there they are axially, and here they are on a coronal plane. So very, very easy not to make that mistake. Uh, I've seen people call things esophageal cancer or gastric fundus tumors and the like, and it's just simply varices. So you want to be very careful. And in the patient with cirrhosis, varices can go in a number of areas. Recanalization of the umbilical vein. So you get large varices in the abdominal wall. You see the umbilical vein here tracking anteriorly to the left lobe of the liver, going into the subcutaneous tissues. And look at those huge varices draining down to the patient's right inguinal region. Here it is on a volume rendered view. So indeed very impressive. You would worry about this if you were doing a biopsy or you're doing a, trying to tap some ascites. That could be catastrophic. But look at the size of the varices that can be present. Now, another thing we see in cirrhosis is regenerating nodules, and that's a topic that's of great interest to many people. I think the biggest challenge with regenerating nodules is, of course, the, the issue with um, the potential for confusing them with tumors, such as hepatoma. And I think, you know, our time is kind of running late, so why don't we do this? Why don't we stop here, and let's start talking about regenerating nodules on the next talk. Thanks very much.